Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. say a prayer together. God, we thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for this church, and we thank you for this time that we have to just spend together uh, in your word and in worship to you. And so we just pray and ask that you would speak to us. Speak to us through the songs that we sing. Speak to us through the words of your scripture, and speak to us through the, the words of this flawed pastor. Allow us to see your face and to have the light of your love shown into our hearts a little more today. God, tear down our walls and build us up in your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, you know, I got a question for you. <laughs> what comes to your mind when you think of a kingdom? There's probably lots of images that come in and through, but I'm going to gander to guess that no matter what, each of those images has at its head some type of dignitary, right? Like a king, a queen, a princess, or a prince, or just some other type of ruler who sits atop their throne, right? And rules over their kingdom with influence and directs the course of things. But what you probably don't know is that I was a king once. I was. I even had a throne and everything. The year was 1996 in a land far, far away, and uh, I had just turned 11 years old. My dad, uh, who is to this day a, a computer software engineer, uh, came home with a new game for our home computer called Civilization II. <laughs> and in this game, you led uh, a fledgling society from a lowly band of settlers into a vast empire. Now, I probably played this game for like seven years straight, as much as my mom would let me. <laughs> and so I got, really got to be, get like the hang of, of just hanging out and ruling over my many little kingdoms from my computer chair throne. But one of the things about this game, Civilization II, was that you'd be given uh, the ability and options to scientifically uh, discover new uh, technologies and also new forms of government. But one of the fatal flaws of this early uh, inception of this Civilization uh, franchise was that uh, the best, most strategic, and most advantageous form of government was always the monarchy. The people were happiest, the production was highest, and the military morale and efficiency were at an all-time high when your title was king or queen. Now, I'm not telling you this to suggest that George Washington messed up 
when he refused the offer to become the king of America, and that monarchy is somehow the best form of government that we should strive for. I'm telling you this because I think what I always capitalized on was the fact that this game was programmed to operate based on the highest possible ideals that each form of government could possibly embody. It assumed something about you as the player of the game, me as 11-year-old Tim sitting on my throne, that I would always, and in every possible way, act in the best interest of my growing empire and the people within it. Which makes sense, because I did. And I did that because that's how you win the game. <laughs> you see, the game could be won in one of two ways. One way, world domination. Take over everything. Conquer the whole world. Or build a spaceship and colonize the planet Alpha Centauri. Basically, you won the game by fulfilling the mission of any respectable and, and good kingdom to spread your influence across the known or even the unknown world. And so if you've been with us and tracking with this sermon series that I've been in called One Story, then you know that we are examining the story of Scripture in like a really super zoomed out way to see how it's really one story that leads to Jesus. And so we've discussed how God is, is a God of creation whose purpose is to create a world that promotes and sustains life. We've talked about how humans have really messed that up over the course of our history, but how God has made a covenant, a promise to one family that he would give them a, a specific piece of land and that he would use them to bless the world, to, to make the world a place that promotes and sustains life. That family was the family of a man named Abraham, but that family found themselves in a whole bunch of trouble down in Egypt. They had become slaves. And so God liberated them and brought them to the base of a mountain, the mount called Sinai, where he gave them a law, a set of ethics to live by in order for them to be capable of blessing the world and making it a place that sustains and promotes life. And so where we left off last week is that this family the Israelites, were sitting just outside of this promised land, the land of Canaan that God had promised to them through their ancestor, Abraham. Now, the leader of the Israelites up until this point in time was a man named Moses, and he passes away. And so the, the torch of leadership is handed on to a man named Joshua. And God comes to Joshua while the people are camped right outside of the land. And he says to them, hey, it's time for you guys to enter the land of Canaan. That sounds great, but the problem is the land of Canaan is filled with Canaanites and other people who inhabit the land. So they can't just like walk in, set down their tents, and get their civilization started. This isn't going to be an easy thing for them to do, but probably even more uh, troublesome than the fact that the land is inhabited by people already is the, the fact that these people, they got a heart problem. We talked about this 
last week, they're not good at following directions. In fact, they're very, very bad at it. But regardless, God is still like, you know what? I'm not going to just like write them off completely. Like, you're still my people. This is still the land that I'm giving to you. So, so please, just, just pay attention to what I'm going to say. And so God uh, says this, and this is uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 1, 6 through 9. So God comes to Joshua, and he gives them some instructions, right, as they're about to enter into the promised land. He says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. For you shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate it on it day and night, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall be successful. I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so there's some really important points in here that are going to really just help us set up our understanding of our whole discussion for today, which is going to revolve around Israel's development into a kingdom and what that kingdom means for us today. But first, I think we need to define what a kingdom is. And the best definition of a kingdom, and in particular God's kingdom, that I've ever run across comes from a scholar named Dr. Patrick Schreiner. And this is what he says a kingdom is. Is. He says, a kingdom, the kingdom, is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And so let's hang on to that for just a moment and look back at this dialogue that God has with Joshua. God says, I am with you wherever you go. Just follow the law that I have given to you and things are going to go well for you. This is really a display of, of God's power. And obviously, this is God's people. These are the Israelites, and they're heading into God's place, the land that was promised to them. And so we've got God's power over God's people in God's place, the makings of a kingdom, which is what Israel will eventually become. And so what happens is Joshua leads the people into the land. There's lots of fighting. They conquer it, and they settle most of it. And then what they do for uh, quite a while is they just fumble around trying to figure out how to live. And they're like really, 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 really bad at it. They don't have a king because at this point, God is supposed to be the king of Israel. And so they go through the cycles of judges who were just rulers that God would come to and raise up so that they could reign in the sinfulness of the tribes of Israel and help them fight against these external threats that constantly came against them from people like the Philistines. But the judges would only be temporarily successful at mitigating the mess that was Israel. 
And this would happen time and time again. And, and there's this reverberating refrain throughout the book of Judges that says, in those days, there was no king. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's like a really scriptural way of saying they're a train wreck. <laughs> and they know it. And so they decide, you know what, we need to do something different here. You know what we don't have? We need a king. And so they go to God and they demand a human king. And God's like, well, all right, I'll give you a king. Uh, and they're like, don't worry, God, we got it figured out. We already have the guy. And God's like, this is not the guy. But they demand it. And so this man named Saul becomes the king of Israel. And, and Saul does not lead according to what God had told Joshua. He doesn't care about God's law. He doesn't care about partnering with God or sharing power with God or, or being God's mouth and voice to Israel. He cares about power. He cares about his own power to the point where he becomes intoxicated by it. And he seeks to kill anyone who might stand in his way. Anyone who might threaten it. Including the young boy who becomes a man who was anointed to be the next king of Israel. A man named David. But Saul eventually dies. And David is made king of Israel. But he's got a lot of actual work to do because Israel isn't really a kingdom yet. There's lots of civil wars going on because Israel is a confederation of tribe and tribes, and David has to unify all of these tribes into one entity, the kingdom of Israel. And he's successful, and he does all of this. And this is what God tells the prophet Nathan to tell David after he's accomplished all of this. This comes from Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. Uh, verses 8 through 11. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and it will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. It's the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. But look at what God calls David. God calls David a prince, not a king. Of course, that doesn't mean that David wasn't a legitimate king of Israel, but what God is pointing to is that David is not the highest authority in Israel. And this is a critical and fundamental characteristic of Israel's monarchy. The king was always meant to be subservient to the king. 
Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because God was the legitimate ruler over Israel. And the king was meant to rule over Israel as God's steward, seeing that God's will was done in and through God's people. Well, that's all well and good, but this can't last forever, right? Because humans, they only live so long. So how can this last? Well, God says that, that he will make David a house, which doesn't mean he's going to build him a nice place to rest his head and have fancy parties. To say that you're going to build someone a house is a Hebrew idiom for saying, I will make you a line of descendants, which is going to continue to elaborate on as the scripture goes forward. So this continues on. This is 2 Samuel now, uh, chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. And so God continues on. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with the rods such as mortals use with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made for forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so this scripture is really twofold. God is talking very literally about David's son, a man named Solomon, who's a very good king for most of his life, but he messes up. God has to straighten him out. But this final line hints at where this kingdom is truly headed. The family of David and the kingdom that they will reign over is going to be established forever. If you continue reading this story, or you just come back next week, you'll find out that this doesn't seem like it's going to come true. Because Israel's kings don't do well. Eventually, the kingdom splits, and, and both halves of the kingdom are conquered by foreign lands and carted off into exile. But that's a topic for another day. The point is, this promise from God seems empty. It seems very far away to these people, Israel, as more and more time passes by. That is until, of course, the ultimate king comes. Born in a manger in the city of Bethlehem, the city known as the city of David to a family that descended from the line of King David, this king, Jesus, born in a humble manger. This king, Jesus, who was hunted at birth by a cruel and power-hungry false king. This king, Jesus, who became a refugee in Egypt, would grow up to announce the coming of a new kingdom. The kingdom of God. And this kingdom would be unlike any kingdom that the world had ever known. It would be a fulfillment of the kingdom of Israel. It would be the way that God would win the game by spreading his influence across the entire globe, across the entire world, 
known and unknown. And it's no coincidence that that Jesus came with an offer of a different type of kingdom into the social and political climate that he did. He came to a land called Judea, the place of his ancestor, where his ancestor David's offspring were meant to rule with truth and justice. And what he found in Judea was a corrupt puppet king named Herod, who ruled with an iron fist at the good pleasure of a higher authority, the Roman emperor Caesar himself. Israel's monarchy, Israel's kingdom, had been hijacked by the Roman Empire and its worship of power, money, military might, and of Caesar himself. And so Jesus' entire ministry was a means of subverting the ways that this society had corrupted the ways that people understood and interacted with their world. And that's why the overarching refrain that began almost all of Jesus' parables was, the kingdom of God is like. You see, Jesus' desire was to prepare people for the new manifestation of the kingdom of Israel. To prepare people to understand what Israel was meant to be. A place that is ruled not by self-serving and comfort, but a place that is ruled and characterized by self-giving love and sacrifice. And that is why, and that is what, the cross brought about. Jesus, by means of humiliation, was beaten, clothed in robes, crowned with thorns, nailed to a cross with a sign that hung above his head, stating, the King of the Jews. But what Jesus' accusers and executioners could never have known was that when they lifted that cross off the ground, when they dropped it, into a hole in the ground. They had put the king on his throne. See, when Jesus came out of that grave, the promise of God to David was fulfilled. One of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. And when Jesus ascended into heaven and he took his seat at the right hand of God, he began to rule over his kingdom for all of eternity. And in the end, he will return to take his throne in a new place a new creation. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place will be a physical reality for us once again. But until then, the kingdom is a place that we've been invited to be kings and queens over, to be stewards of. And it's a broken place. It's a mess. It's dysfunctional. And it is this thing we call the church. You see, the church is God's best chance for this world in this time. It's God's best way of showing the world what the kingdom of God is like. And so I suppose that that begs us the question, Are we showing our best representation to the world of what the kingdom of God is like? Do you leave here thinking to yourself, well, darn, 
if that isn't the king's power over the God, over the king's people in the king's place, then I don't really know what is. And for you in your life, is, is the king's power really the guiding life, light in your life? Is the true king, King Jesus, the one who directs your paths? Or is it these false puppet kings that we create? These kings that come to us through our television screens and through our, our cell phones that tell us how to feel or who to care for, that tell us what's real and what's not, what's true and what's false. Do we follow those kings and queens or do we follow the true king, the king of kings, King Jesus, King Jesus who came and showed us and told us what the kingdom of God is like? Because I'm here to tell you that the kingdom of God, well, the kingdom of God is like an outstretched arm. The kingdom of God is like a warm embrace. The kingdom of God is like a welcome home. The kingdom of God is like an alcoholic who stops drinking. The kingdom of God is like an addict who gets clean. The kingdom of God is like food in the belly of a hungry person. The kingdom of God is like shelter for the homeless, like power to the powerless, like a release from the chains that grip us as individuals and as a society. The kingdom of God, well, it's like a 130-year-old church. It sits in that weird place where Orange, 7th, and Avenue A all meet parking lot filled with peacocks and the smell of Haitian food. It's a place where a community on the outskirts can, can come and plant a garden. They can send their kids to an art school. Or they can send their kids to a camp. It's a place where artists can come and practice their craft and where you can hear laughter from the office all the way down every single hall and through every single AC vent in the it's a place where a long-haired, tattooed pastor can find welcome and love. It's a place where folks who have loved and lost can come and be embraced as family. The kingdom of God is like First Church. And I wholeheartedly believe that. And I hope that you do too. Because we might not have uh, fancy new buildings and smoke machines and rooms packed with young families, but you know what we do have? We have the king. And we have the king's power. We have the king's people. And this most certainly is the king's place. For me, that's what the kingdom of God looks like at least for now, until the kingdom of God looks like this. And the, it comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. But I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying see the home of God is among mortals he will dwell with them 
and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. But until then, we wait. We do our best to make this place this little slice of God's kingdom, I like to call it the south side, look a little bit more like the kingdom to come. You know, the night before Jesus became the king who sat on a cross, he had a coronation celebration, a banquet, if you will, with those who would become the stewards of the kingdom to come. And as he sat in an upper room with his disciples, knowing that it would be the last meal that they would share together, he washed their feet, he served them, and he showed them just who a king is meant to be. And in that dinner, he took bread, and he gave thanks to God. And he blessed the bread, and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take this, eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. And then when the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks to you, O God. He blessed it, and he, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So do this every time that you gather in remembrance of me. Mm -hmm.